In 2020, the Film and Whiskey podcast nearly came to a violent end with this review of a movie. In 2022, we try three whiskeys from a craft Virginia distillery. This is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, The Revisit. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. This week we are giving you another special bonus episode. Bonus episode! This is one that we do every season. It's called The Revisit, where we revisit a movie, a review from uh, the annals of film and whiskey lore. We've put out a lot of episodes, Brad, and I don't expect people to go back through all 300 of them, I think, at this point. Yeah, it's quite Uh, a few. So even though it's only been, you know, chronologically two years since we've done Eternal Sunshine, I mean, that was way back in season two. We've watched a lot of movies since then. We have both changed as people since then. Uh, This this review originally came out in February of 2020. So pre-pandemic, the world Mm. was a different place, Brad. It was, and I was still the same miserly old soul. <laughs> I was going to say, our petty arguments, I look back <laughs> on them now and I'm like, how quaint, you know? Like, <laughs> that was before I didn't see you for a year. Right, exactly. What a, what a time <laughs> when we could just argue over eternal sunshine. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. <laughs> this was one of the most uh, violently opposed moments of our friendship. Uh, the history of Bob Book and Brad G's friendship. You gave yeah, this, this movie a 2.5 out of 10, Brad. Yeah, this and Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> We've told the Taco Bell story elsewhere on the podcast. It's not getting revisited today. Uh, mm-hmm. We're revisiting Eternal Sunshine. So what we're doing is we're we're watching the movie again. We're going to see if Brad has changed his mind any, if I've changed my mind any. I believe I gave this movie a nine and a half the last time we watched it. I did yeah. go back and listen to a bit of the episode from last time around, but I didn't want to listen to the whole thing because I didn't want to I didn't want it to like taint what I'd say today. So if I do get repetitive from the last time, I apologize. I wanted to get a picture of what Brad's main argument against the movie is. So I, I have that in mind. I have prepared myself to combat that again. Uh, <laughs> but I just finished watching this movie like 30 minutes ago, Brad. So it's still really fresh at the top of my yeah. mind. Uh, when did you watch it? Um, on Thursday and today's Sunday. So okay. So three, it's been three, a couple days. days ago. You've been ruminating. I have. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've been percolating. Well, let's jump right into it, man. I, uh, I don't want to spoil final scores, but if we're just talking like initial impressions, has anything about this changed your opinion on the second viewing? Um, I think that. There are not many movies out there that are a two and a half out of ten. Mm. Like it, it, it's a it's a special spot. Cats, uh, cats, Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> like, like those level of movies are two to three out of ten. Mm-hmm. Eternal Sunshine is not that. Sure, I was I was in a very special place. I think. Uh, it, it, honestly, the only other time in this podcast history I can think of where I was as angry about a movie was the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, mm-hmm. 
where I just literally, <laughs> bro, I just remember I, I was like, I don't know, three hours into the movie <laughs> and I, I pulled up like, you know, how much time was left and there was still four hours <laughs> and I was just like anger just filled my soul. And I, I think Eternal Sunshine is the only other time I felt that frustrated. Mm. And yet this time I, I just took it out on the final score. I don't think that this movie is a two and a half. I think it's better than that. I still don't like it. Okay. Now, I, I will say there are moments where I watch a movie that is well received and it just doesn't work for me. But I don't think I've ever watched a movie that is uh, that that I can at least acknowledge is is well made or that I see the intention behind. And it is such a colossal failure that I would give it a two and a half. So, yeah, you know, I went to see this movie a few weeks ago. It's the new movie by David O. Russell called Amsterdam. And that movie was a failure of all failures. It was it was so bad that <laughs> at multiple points I was like, I should get up and walk out like I'm really not paying anything for this movie. I should just leave. I, I started falling asleep at one point and then I like coaxed myself back awake and I looked at my my phone clock. I was the only person in the theater. I was like, there's 20 minutes left. I can do it. That movie, I gave a three out of 10. So like to give something a two and a half has to, like you said, it has to be a cat's level, you know, catastrophe. 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 Yes. Ah. You could tell that I was trying to avoid saying that, (laughs) but I couldn't think of another. The last second. (laughs) (laughs) So we're at least above a two and a half. Let's just kind of jump right into performances. I think you had an issue with not the performances themselves, but the characters in this movie last time around, Mm -hmm. Um, separating out the characters from the performances. When you look at Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, what did you think about the way that they portrayed these characters? I think that the, the characters as written and the characters as portrayed are just kind of ridiculous and and wildly overplayed. Mm, okay. Like Jim Carrey is a sad sack, lonely human being, and he just hams that up at every single moment of the existence of his character. It's so funny and to use ca- the phrase hamming it up though, because like the character is the opposite of hamming it up. But I know what you're saying. Like he really leans into how can I be the most morose version yes. of this character at every turn? Exactly. Like, it, like hamming it up would normally be what Kate Winslet, Winslet does in this movie. Mm. Uh, but I think that it's, it's just the idea of overplaying the character. Mm-hmm. And he just overplays the morosely, sad, lonely, introverted individual. And I I just find it ridiculous. I am married to an introvert. I know many introverts. This is a caricature of an introvert. (laughs) And I don't enjoy the performance. Okay, now having said that, the moments in the movie where they're supposed to be a level of absurdity, like where they go hide in his childhood memories and he's behaving like a four-year-old. Yeah. Did did those moments work better for you than the morose moments because yes. he's doing something different? Yeah, a hundred percent. Like it's the like there's a very few parts of this movie where I feel like the the what's uh what's the the MacGuffin? Like there's very few points where I feel like the the MacGuffin is clever. 
And like that scene is one of them hmm. where they they take it in an unexpected direction and use it to help explain the backstory of Joel, yeah. Jim Carrey's character. Yeah. Where I'm like, oh, yeah, like this I can this I can get down with. And I, I enjoyed that moment where he's trying to straddle the line of like, I know I'm an adult, but I'm emotionally a four-year-old right now Mm -hmm. and i'm trying to straddle that line there's a few moments like that throughout the film where i'm like oh okay like yes you you are acting now and and not just in one not in a very one note performance i think that's kind of why this movie still works for me the more i think about it because you know i touched on this in the original episode but the writer of this movie charlie kaufman has become very famous in hollywood for his uh elaborate kind of mind of a script every script he makes is this like wild off the wall only he could think of something this crazy and honestly eternal sunshine is probably the most conventional script out of all the scripts he's written and it tells the most in in a weird sense the most linear story of all of them and i love that they use the opportunity to like to delve into those weird absurd moments of you know i'm a four-year-old now But because it actually says something, and I think it says something kind of profound, that this this whole movie boils down to uh, how do we communicate with each other? What uh, what does the lack of communication look like? Why would we rather cut people off than uh, be vulnerable with each other than open ourselves up? And I love the fact that like you know she's asking Joel hide me somewhere where they never find me hide me somewhere where they would never expect to be able to erase the memory of hide me in your humiliation and so they go back to these moments in his childhood and it's like it it's so sad in a way to think of the fact that she's never been exposed to those memories before like he's never opened up to her in the whole i think it's a two year relationship that they they mention and i just i really love that it's this it's a reflection on You know, if he had just opened himself up in this way to her to begin with, they wouldn't be going through this at all. And uh, I I think it says a lot about, I I don't know, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that there is a universal message inside this movie about two very quirky characters. Yeah. And they do, they do have a a few moments where they communicate that really well. Like, Mm -hmm. honestly, one of the best lines of the movie is when Jim Carrey says to Kate Winslet's character, uh, it's something along the lines of, just because you're talking all the time doesn't mean you're actually communicating. Yes, yeah. And I'm like, that is one of the snarkiest, most biting comments you can ever make. And yet, like, if a professor was, like, teaching on communication and said that from the lecture, you know, from the lectern, Everybody would be like, oh, wow, that's really deep. Like, <laughs> like that's really like, yeah, like just because you're talking all the time doesn't mean you're communicating. The problem that I have is Kaufman has no subtlety and he couldn't create a character that like mostly talks all the time. He had to create the most like I, I, I'm not necessarily calling her this because she ruins everything. But, like, she puts the manic in Manic Pixie Dream Girl. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like Kate, I, Kate Winslet is the most psychotic character, and and Jim Carrey is the most introverted character that you could ever imagine who never can be, oh, oh you, you always write in your stupid little books, and you never actually say anything to me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he's 
he's the guy who just writes in his journal and draws pictures right. and, and and it's like it doesn't it feels like a Clint Eastwood version of two human beings there's no subtlety that like they are just i yeah no i, just I get don't what you're think saying it's well written i have thought about the manic pixie dream girl thing because you know that that really came to pass with 500 days of summer and I, mm-hmm. I look back on this and I thought about that phrase as I was watching it. And I was like, I don't know if I'd call her the manic pixie dream girl because she's not a dream girl. Like <laughs> the they go manic to great pixie nightmare girl. Yeah. And they go to great pains, <laughs> especially at, at the front, you know, 40 minutes of the movie. As I'm watching it, I'm just like, this is an entirely unpleasant human being. And I don't know why he would want to mm-hmm. be with her. And then, of course, as the movie goes on, and again, I think this is part of why it's so brilliantly written and so brilliantly constructed. The happy memories don't start coming out until midway through the film. And again, Mm -hmm. I I think that says so much about the way that when we are at odds with someone, when we're fighting with someone, especially in in a marital relationship or a serious romantic relationship, the things that are on top of mind are, you know, the awful things that you're going through. And you don't it takes you so long to get down to the root of like why am i with this person why am i actually happy uh and you start to see clementine for who she actually is or who joel actually thinks she is not just like the vindictive that he thinks she is but why they actually did make a good pair and yet and i think this is the most brilliant little directorial touch the last shot of the movie you know, after they have their happy ending where they commit to each other and say, like, I'm going to take on your baggage again and maybe we'll keep going through this and maybe we won't. But like, I'd rather go through the bad stuff than try to forget about it. And then they cut to you, you think it's a happy ending and they cut to a shot of them frolicking on the beach again. And then that shot replays three times. And it's like, oh, maybe they are doomed to keep repeating this cycle. Maybe they aren't good for each other. And I still think that the the overall message of the movie is like, so what if they're not good for each other? Like, it is still better. It's more it's better to be human. It's and it's more human to embrace the messiness of it than to try to erase it. And I don't know, man, I just I, I still think this is a really well written, well constructed movie in a way that apparently you don't. It's it's so incredibly pretentious. Oh, come on. I'm I'm pulling the pretentious card Duh. Bob. That like this just because you're saying a lot of stuff all at once <laughs> doesn't mean you're actually communicating. You something, can't use Charlie the movie's Kaufman. own line against it. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, like he he throws all of these fancy tricks at you, but really this story, there's not much to the message of this story. It feels like he's just a horny 20-something jumping up and down on the sheets in his underwear, more so than an actual deep thinker who's drawing pictures in his notebook. Mm. Like, I just, the, when I when I work my way through this film, I find myself thinking, like, this is just the story of people who aren't good for each other and are trying to justify why they're together. And, like, that's fine. Like, that's a that's a common story to the human existence. But it's not a very deep or interesting one to me. Interesting. Huh. And Uh, I think that's the struggle for me is I don't think that this movie actually says very much at all. And all of the choices that, you know, Kaufman as a writer and uh, who's who's the directors? Michelle Gondry. Gondry. Yeah, that like Gondry as a director makes all these capital C choices 
but the the message of the movie doesn't support the decision. Interesting. And I I think that for me, if you're gonna move in a really artsy, like stylized direction, I think it needs to be supported like with a solid foundational message that is deep and impactful and interesting and meaningful and and nuanced and is teased out well throughout the story. Mm. For me, there is nothing that was nuanced or teased out about this movie. All right. Well, we'll, we will let that point stand for the time being before we come back from break and I just annihilate you. But let's try these three whiskeys, Brad. I think this is a good place for a little break. So we're trying three whiskeys today from KO Distilling in Manassas, Virginia. This is a distillery that's been around for about a decade now. They are distilling their own product on site. And two of the three samples that we're trying today do come from their own distillate. One is sourced. We'll talk about that one when we get to it. We have a bottled and bond bourbon, a bottled and bond rye, and a cask strength bourbon to get to, Brad. So uh, what are you thinking? Which one should we start with today? Uh, let's move through the two bottled and bonds. Mm-hmm. We, we can do the bourbon and then the rye, and then we'll get into that high rye bourbon that's cask strength. Yeah, so let's start with the bourbon. This is a 70% corn, 20% wheat, 10% barley bourbon. So I know we're drinking a high rye cask strength bourbon later, but there's no rye in this at all. It's a weeded bourbon, Brad. This is aged for at least four years, distilled on site at KO Distilling. Uh, What are you picking up on this, man? Yeah, it's a really nice, pleasant nose. You definitely get some of that graininess uh, Mm -hmm. that if they had put this out at two years would have been overwhelming. Agreed. Um, But as it is, it's, it's a pleasant undertone to the the greater pop of like cherry and a little bit of caramel and a, a little bit of vanilla. It's it's a really nice soft nose that I enjoy. Yeah, and I think the palate kind of is the same thing, but maybe amplified a little bit more. I really like that this is a weeded bourbon. Like you said, it gives it the, those notes of obviously it has the caramel from the corn, but it has that cherry cola note that we love so much with our weeded bourbons. And then it, it does have that hint of youthfulness to it still, Brad. And like you said, if this was two years old, this would be a, a pretty almost raw tasting grain forward craft bourbon at four years, still a little youthful, but it's almost like that youthful note or the grainy note is in addition to a really well-rounded wheat bourbon. I don't know if that makes sense. It doesn't seem like yeah. uh, it doesn't seem like this is a young bourbon. It just seems like they've added one additional note to our tasting, and it is that mm-hmm. youthful graininess. I actually like this quite a bit. Yeah, it's pretty solid. I, I think as I move through the palate and the finish, you, you get a lot of the classic notes. You get caramel. You get vanilla. Um, it turns a little bit oaky at the end. I think that the barley starts to come through at the very end of the finish, mm-hmm. where it kind of sits for a little while. Um, and there's a little bit of that cherry wheat taste coming through. I I don't know if I would say this is anything to write home about, but if you were local to the area, I could see myself really enjoying like having this solid of a whiskey nearby. Oh, for sure. Like this is for craft whiskey. This is really, really good. And yes. uh, I, I'm a big fan already. So let's try this rye. I know we're moving at a little bit of a quicker pace today, but that's because these revisit episodes tend to be a bit shorter. So we're moving into the bottled in bond rye. As I pull up the mash bill here, this is a 100% Virginia grown rye. So we're not, I mean, it's not uh, cut with any other grain. 
Brad, what do you think of the 100% rye? It smells like rye. <laughs> Fun fact, it tastes like rye. Uh, and just to throw it out there, it finishes like a rye. <laughs> All right. So four years old, is is it as youthful, do you think, as the bourbon was? Yes, a okay. little bit more so. Oh, I, I think that this I think that this one is incredibly grainy. Um, I guess I shouldn't say grainy because that might imply that there's more than one grain. <laughs> this one literally just tastes like a loaf of rye bread. It's not sweet, but I, I actually no. don't know if I'd call this one youthful. And again, maybe I'm just more sensitive to rye because I don't quite like them as much as you do, Brad. This just reminds me. Uh, you're right. I mean, like it's rye forward. But I think if this was younger, this would be uh, this would be a lot to deal with. At four years old, I actually really don't mind this at all. And it's got some really like black coffee notes for me. It's almost Mm -hmm. tannic in a way. I really like it. Uh, It leans more into that sort of like mint dill rye grain side of of a rye as opposed to the more caramely notes that you sometimes get. Uh, Yeah. You know, man, I I don't know. I think I'm going to differ with you on this one. I like this a lot. No, I I was not saying that I don't like it. I actually really like this. Yeah. <laughs> I think it tastes like rye all the way through, and that's a that's a unique experience. I don't feel like there's many ryes that I smell it and go, "Oh, yep, that is 100% a rye." And then I taste it and it's got all of those nice spicy rye notes mixed with some of those seasonings. Mm-hmm. Like you said, those dills, the the little bit of peppermint even a little bit of parsley almost. And then on the finish, I'm like, oh, well, yep, more rye. And I enjoy the entire experience immensely. I'm still fascinated. I I don't know if I've said this before. Still to this day, even after having drank so much rye whiskey and really loved it, I hate rye bread. I I had it again the other day (laughs) and was just like, this is disgusting. Who would want to eat this? And then I drink this whiskey that like kind of tastes the same and I'm like all about it. So I don't, I don't know, man. It's weird. I love that you keep trying it though. Mm-hmm. Like you, your opinion is very well established on rye bread, but you're like, you know yeah. what? <laughs> Let's just, give it another gonna, try. going to go down this trail again. <laughs> it's like all when right. you go and watch 2001 for the 17th time. And, and I'm, I'm like, like it, Bob, it's Bob, gonna I know you're not going to like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one is the Bare Knuckle High Rye Bourbon. This is a cask strength bourbon. Now, Brad, from what I could find online, this is distilled by MGP. This is a six-year bourbon. However, I know that they've been distilling their own stuff for long enough at KO that at some point they may be switching over to their own distillate for this six-year bourbon. Uh, this uh, I'm, I'm looking at a review of the product online that someone wrote last year, 2021, and at that point, it was distilled by MGP. The media sample that we have has quite a bit of information on its label, but it does not tell me where it was distilled. So I'm going to go ahead and guess for consistency's sake, this was distilled by MGP. Uh, this is aged for six years. Like I said, it's 127.59 proof. Brad, what are you picking up on this bad boy? Can I just say before we we get into notes, every time we talk about MGP, my brain, like somewhere deep in my subconscious, just sees the opening title card for MGM and like sees the <laughs> roaring lion. 
And so now at this point, I've just like assumed that the logo for MGP is a roaring lion. That's hilarious, dude. There's a reason MGP makes so much whiskey and sources so much. Mm -hmm. They just make a really killer, killer whiskey. Yeah, this smells like caramel corn. Like there's there's a there's a mm-hmm. saltiness to it. And I'm going to be honest here, and I'm I don't feel bad saying this because this is an MGP product and not something distilled by Ko. For a second, I was like, this smells a little bit like piss. <laughs> and then <laughs> as I started nosing it a little more, I was like, oh, it's not piss, but it is briny. And and then all of a sudden, like the caramel notes came through, and I, I was thought like, you're going to say, oh, it's not piss, it's caramel corn. <laughs> it is. Easy, That's exactly easy what it to is. Get- Easy to get confused, Bob. I'm telling you, dude, it was like buttered popcorn and then caramel. And I was like, okay. So I, my mind went from like briny pea <laughs> to buttered popcorn to caramel corn. I just feel like you're standing at the toilet in the in the movie theater holding the popcorn in your left hand. Just sniffing the right. bucket while, while peeing. It's like, oh, that's the stuff right there. Oh, that's the best tasting journey you have taken us on Bob. Thank you for that. So anyway, in a weird way, I don't dislike it. It just uh it took my mind a minute for the synapses to fire uh mm-hmm. and and trace the journey from briny urine to caramel corn. <laughs> <laughs> I, I you need to just go onto the pal, man. I I need a minute. It tastes kind of like the buttered popcorn jelly belly. Yep. Uh, oh yeah, dude. Which is kind of like that's that's what it's reminding me of. It's not so much caramel corn as it is like it's sweet or you know, kettle corn, I guess if that's what you want to go for, but it has that salty butteriness to it as well. Yeah. I I was going to say it literally tastes for me there's j- just enough graininess that it have you ever gotten like literally like ripped the toast out of the toaster and then just slathered way too much butter on it <laughs> absolutely every day of my life like, the initial layer melts and you can't see it and then you slather a whole nother layer on that doesn't melt and you mm-hmm. can just see all the butter i feel like i'm eating that piece of toast if it was salted butter so here's what i'll say and I know that I, I probably made this sound unpalatable with my initial nosing note there. I wonder why. There are a number of people who don't like the buttered popcorn jelly belly. Like, it's a very divisive bean, and uh, I really love <laughs> are, it. Are you on a subreddit of <laughs> jelly bellies, like, daily? Yeah. <laughs> I, I participate in many polls. But seriously, okay. like, I, you know, I, I, I've had jelly bellies before and people have been like, ew, those are gross. It's like the, the popcorn ones and the licorice ones. People don't like them. Uh, so if you're not a fan of that jelly belly, I don't know if this is the whiskey for you. But for me, I really love that combination of, of salty and sweet and buttery. I, th- I think this is a really, really good whiskey, Brad. Uh, it's probably yeah. the best of the three here. But with that said, I think that the stuff that ko is distilling themselves is in a completely different wheelhouse than this it's not as if they're competing in any way with each other no not at all the the bourbon that they are are making obviously is not competing it's you know if anything it would be considered a high wheat bourbon right right uh so they're they're in a completely different wheelhouse i think that this is an example of a distillery that is confident in their own product but also want to give their their local geography a great experience while they're waiting the four years mm-hmm. for their own bottled and bond stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan, man. I, I like I really feel like we had 
kind of a flight of whiskeys here. They were all yeah. very different from each other. They had their own things going on. Super unique. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan. Yeah, I would say it's it's a pretty easy knockout for me, Bob. All right, man. Let's get back into talking about Eternal Sunshine. What do you say? I'm ready, man. Let's let's get back at it. I'm putting the gloves back on. All right, Brad, I don't have too much more to say about this movie. I would like to hear, you know, this is a pretty big cast and we've only talked about the two main characters. What did you think of the supporting performances? Was there anybody that stood out to you this time through for better or for worse? I do remember thinking the first time I saw this that the character played by, I believe it's Tom Wilkinson. Yeah. I really like Dr. Mirzwak, Mir- mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. I think that the story behind the scenes of him erasing the memory of Mary, his assistant, and his wife leaving him and like all this stuff, like that storyline was way more fascinating than anything that happened between Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet. (laughs) I think that the best moment of the movie, the most honest, like raw, authentic moments of the movie is when Mark Ruffalo is like promising uh, Kirsten, Kirsten Dunst that he didn't know about the memory wipe between, you know, her and the doctor and that, you know, he, he would never have done anything if he did, like he would have told her, And then he looks at her as she's like leaving, you know, because she's very clearly like just over the whole thing. And he just says to her, hey, like, Mary, I really liked you. And that is the single most authentic moment in this entire film. You're correct. And I loved that. Big, big fan. So here's why I love that subplot is because what is happening in that subplot illuminates what's happening with Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet. Like... You know, uh, uh, Elijah Wood's character is a piece of shit, and Tom <laughs> Wilkinson's character, it turns out, is a piece of shit. And in some ways, Mark Ruffalo's character is kind of like an accessory to shit. He's not quite, mm-hmm. not quite a piece of shit, but he's almost yeah. there. But what you have there is the sort of pinnacle of the ethical shittiness of this company. Like, you did this to your own assistant. You, like, and in the script, Brad, I actually went online and read a little bit of the script before we hopped on tonight and they didn't include this in the movie. He actually got her pregnant and convinced her to go get an abortion. And so they didn't use that in the movies. And I'm glad they didn't go there. I think that would have been me to like this movie more. Well, so that's what I'm saying. I'm glad they didn't use that in the movie. I think that would have been kind of a bridge too far, but you have that moment with Mark Ruffalo where he gets, I mean, he's just heartbroken as he walks away and that's the last you see of him. But what that moment tells you is like, yeah, he just struck out with this girl that he really liked. And everyone's life is a a little bit affected by this thing that this doctor did. But it's still better for them to have those memories. Like Kirsten Dunst is leaving without even the dignity of having the memory of that horrible relationship. And I, I just really love that this movie time and time again affirms that like, Yeah, life is complex and life is hard. And there are moments that you probably want to forget. But the beautiful thing about being human is that we have those mixed emotions. And and Brad, honestly, like, you know, I I wasn't going to spring this on you, but I've been thinking as we've talked about this the whole time on our regular episodes, we do this thing called make it a double where we pair it up with another movie. And I've thought about a few movies that I would pair this up with that I think would go well with the vibe of this movie or whatever. But 
honestly, when it comes down to what I think the main message of this movie is, I actually think this pairs up really well with the Pixar film Inside Out, which, Mm. you know, the core message of that movie is, well, I said core, but like, you know, it's about core memories and how you have to have the sad memories to make the happy memories mean something. And, And part of being human and part of growing up is learning how to have these complex emotions where there's... Uh, you know, sadness intermingled with the happiness. This morning, my wife and I and our family had our last Sunday at the church that we've been serving for five years. And they they had a, a beautiful little ceremony for my wife. And, and, you know, everybody gave her a standing ovation. And it was it was really beautiful. But it was a very bittersweet moment. And we hugged a lot of people and there were a lot of tears. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, confessing on everybody's part of like what we what we did and what we hadn't done and what we wish we had done. And it was a, it was a really beautiful, bittersweet day. And my son took it kind of hard. It's the only church he's ever gone to. And he, he's good. He says he's going to miss his friends. And um, you know, we're, we're going to find a church that's closer to our home now. And I had to teach him on the way home what the word bittersweet meant. And honestly, Brad, I, I wasn't even thinking about the fact that I just had this experience today, but I think I really love that the message of this movie ultimately is that the bittersweet is what makes us human. And that is something to be celebrated and and something to be praised. And I think that as weird and absurd and wacky as this movie is sometimes, it really does have something to say. And I know that you, you know, you came away from this movie thinking that it didn't have much to say, but I found it really beautiful and kind of poetic how it says all of those things in a movie where it doesn't have to explicitly verbalize any of those things. So uh, I'll jump into final scores, man. I'm going to stick at a nine and a half. I was about 40 minutes into this movie and thinking that I might bring it down a peg or two. But by the time I walked away from it, it's just it's it's nearly perfect to me. And a lot of the reason that I think it's nearly perfect is because it plays so well on my emotions. Uh, So I'm sticking at a nine and a half and I'm anxious to see how far up from a 2.5 you've come this time around. 2.65. (laughs) No, I, I mean, I love, love the way that this movie has, has spoken to you, Bob. And I, I I think that that's the beauty of, of film and cinema is that the way it can connect to us. Um, I also think it's great to use, you know, a highly personal recent example that you're not allowed to argue against. So bravo, man. Way to way to to use that in your favor. Check and mate. <laughs> I think that for me, one of the most interesting messages I took away from the movie this time through rather than last time. I think that this movie actually has a lot to say about the danger of using consent as a be all end all in our society. Uh, the A few months ago, I read this article from The Atlantic, and I don't remember the exact title, but it essentially was like, we need a better rule to follow in our in our sexual encounters than consent. And it, it basically talked about, like, just because we say we want something right now doesn't necessarily mean we're going to like the fact that we did what we did later. Hmm. And watching this movie, like, one of the key elements is that, you know, Joel and and Clementine and even Mary, they hear themselves giving consent to this operation played back to them on a on a, you know, on a on a cassette. And 
it just made me really think about the fact that like if the only thing we have guiding our thoughts in any given moment are our internal feelings I feel like we're going to be really left lacking yeah. in our world. Yeah, I mean, it, that it, 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 I don't mean to interrupt you. I think I do want to just offer a point of clarification that what you're saying is not that consent is bad, but that no, the, the, no, no, no. the, the short-sightedness of saying yes in the moment and not realizing the ramifications of saying yes mm -hmm. and the impulsivity of that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 100%. Like, yes. Consent <laughs> is very important. Important clarification. I feel like important we need to clarification. <laughs> but I, I don't think that it should be the only standard by which we engage in life. And, and, and I'm not just talking about sexual encounters. I'm talking about life. Like, yeah. we shouldn't just consider, oh, well, they, they consented. So everything was okay and above board. Mm -hmm. Nothing was immoral about the thing that we did. We're okay. We're good. I'm like, well, no, like we we need more standards than at this moment. I feel like I'm OK with what's happening. We yeah. need something outside of us to help us make decisions, because if left to our own de devices, humans don't make great decisions pretty consistently. I right. think we can all agree on that. So that was an interesting take that I, I don't know if they meant for this movie to to have as a takeaway, but it's something I noticed this watch through. So, yeah, I, I think that this movie works better than any movie that's a two and a half out of ten. Uh, I still don't like it. I, I still think that it's a it's a whole lot to do about not that much. I will give it a five and a half out of ten, Bob. I think that is like entirely too low, but that also means that you have raised your score like a full three points out of ten. Yeah. That's a that's a percent higher. That's a big jump. Yeah. <laughs> But I've I've put it more properly into the I think this is a garbage movie, but it's not Bohemian Rhapsody or Cats. Yeah. Yeah. There's so, like there's certain know. categories like, you know, in my own mind where I'm like, all right, this is a poorly made movie that doesn't work. That's like a two and a half or like yeah. this is a poorly made movie. But by God, I still enjoyed it. That's like a five and mm -hmm. a half. Then there's also like this is a well-made movie that I think is bad. And that's the hardest one to do. Not even just like yeah. it didn't work for me, but like I actually disagree with almost everything. Almost every choice made in this movie doesn't work for mm -hmm. me. And those are really hard to score out because it's like I can't score it too high because I literally don't think it's good. But it's like, damn it. I also have to acknowledge that even if it's not my cup of tea, there's certain elements. that. Yeah, work. yeah. So yeah, yeah that, I, I mean, that's that's kind of where I'm at with this movie, man. I applaud you for being honest enough to put it at a five and a half. Yeah, two and a half yep. was egregious. I had to call you out on that, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was feeling some kind of way, Bob. Yeah, like seriously, I would encourage people to go back and listen to that episode. I have never heard Brad come out of the gate like he he seemed angry at me for making him waste his time on this movie. <laughs> You know, instead of like pulling clips from the movie and playing them periodically, you should just pull clips from that episode <laughs> and play it interspersed throughout this episode. I probably will. I probably will. All right. So this is the first of two episodes we're releasing this week. We're taking the week off for Thanksgiving, but you're getting two brand new bonus episodes. So this one's coming out today, Monday on Thursday, Thanksgiving. We will be having our third annual Hanksgiving episode. Hanksgiving. Hanksgiving. What movie? Oh, yeah. 
We'll be watching A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Tom Hanks' mm. 2019 Mr. Rogers biopic. What a great movie. I'm excited to talk oh, about that dude. one. I'm excited to, for it too, man. So yeah, as you are prepping your Thanksgiving meal, make sure to tune in on Thursday. Throw that one on in the background. Uh, we'll be back next Monday with another regularly scheduled episode. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>